Hello there. Thanks for listening to the Elevate Christian Church podcast. We exist as a church to connect people with God and each other. Today's message comes to us from our lead minister and preacher, Kevin Barton. We hope this inspires you, grows you, and challenges you in your faith and your walk with Jesus. Enjoy! We are continuing with our series entitled Rediscover Jesus. Uh, We're simply preaching through the Gospel of John. And let me remind you uh, why we're doing this series. I I just feel like over the past 12 months, uh, we have had a lot of things go on um, to take our mind, to take our focus, and to take our eyes off of Jesus, our Savior. Uh, We have failed to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Uh, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And so we want to do this series. Um, I'll say it again, this is the third week in a row, because we just want you to begin to uh, rediscover your relationship with Jesus, to engage in large quantities uh, with Him. And so this morning we have two passages of Scripture. They're both pretty long, so I'm going to break them up. Uh, They're both in the first chapter of John. And both of these passages are dealing uh, with Jesus calling men uh, onto himself, calling them to become his disciples. Uh, The first passage has two men that he recruits to be his disciples, and then the second passage has two more. Um, One of the the first of the two men that we're going to read about was a disciple of John the Baptist. We talked about John the Baptist last week. He had his own followers, just like Jesus, uh, who who followed him around, who he preached to. Uh, And we talked about this pretty extensively last week. Uh, Here's where we kind of left you last week. Remember, John sees Jesus and shouts out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. I must decrease and he must increase. Essentially saying, Hey, you're following me now, but I'm just preparing the way for Jesus because eventually I want you to follow him. Well, we've come to this point where Jesus is recruiting his disciples. And so let's read the first passage together. It's John chapter 1 verses 35 through 42. The next day, again, John, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as Jesus walked by and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So let me just stop right there. Essentially, there comes Jesus. John says, there's the Lamb of God. And two of his own followers said, see you later, John. We're not going to follow you anymore. We're going to follow Jesus. That's what John wants them to do. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following him, and he said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew. You might know that name. Andrew eventually becomes one of the 12 apostles. Andrew is Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. 
he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Okay, so that's the first passage of Scripture. These are two names you're familiar with. These, fisher, these fishermen turned into fisher of men, Andrew and Peter. When Andrew finds Jesus and realizes who it is, the first thing that he does is he runs back to his brother, Simon, to tell him, hey, we have found the one they call Jesus. We have found the Messiah. And these two brothers are eventually going to follow Jesus to the ends of the earth. Now let's look at the second passage. This happens right after uh, the break in the passage is just man-made. Verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now look what Philip does. He does exactly what Andrew does. Philip went and found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I, I, I love that. Philip, Philip said, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Okay, so in both of these passages, Jesus is calling for people to follow him. And Jesus also calls you and I to follow him. In other words, we are invited to come and see. We're invited to put our faith, our hope, and our trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of Israel. And so with that in mind, I want to talk to you about three things from the text this morning. Number one, I want to talk to you about the question. Number two, I want to talk to you about the invitation. And then number three, I want you to see the true identity of Jesus Christ. So let's start with the question. Jesus asked them a very important question, the, the, the first set of men, in verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them and said to them, what are you seeking? Okay, in other words, they're following behind Jesus. They leave John. Jesus is going on his way. He hears footsteps behind him, and he, he turns around, and he sees these two men following him, and he asks the question, what are you seeking? In other words, hey, why are you following me? What do you hope to gain in following me? What are you looking for? When you follow me, this is what relationship experts and counselors call the DTR moment. Define the relationship moment. It's kind of that, hey, we need to talk moment in a relationship, right? So if you've been dating someone for a while, uh, you have the talk, right? Hey, 
Where's this thing going? Why are we together? What do you want out of this relationship? It's a DTR moment when Jesus says, what are you seeking? And I want you to pause for just a second, and I want you to contemplate that question because I believe Jesus is asking you the very same question. He's asking me the very same question. Why are you seeking Jesus? Why are you here at church right now this morning? Why have you made some of the life changes that you've made? Why are you following Jesus? People follow Jesus for so many different reasons, don't they? Right? Some people follow Jesus simply because they're afraid. Well, I don't want to go to hell. I don't really love Jesus that much. I'm kind of indifferent about it. But if it gets me out of hell, it's a, my get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, yeah, I'll follow him. Some people follow Jesus because uh, they're under the assumption that Jesus will take care of me. He's going to keep me safe. I'm not going to get sick. He's going to keep my kids safe. And so we have this relationship. I'll follow you if you keep me safe. And they throw that, they quote that scripture all the time. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. One of the most abused and misquoted scriptures in the Bible. Other people follow Jesus because they want to be blessed. Kind of that prosperity gospel. Well, if I follow him, especially if I give a lot of money to, to the televangelist, Jesus is going to bless me. I'm going to drive a Lexus. I'm going to live in Brookstone or, or Seven Hills. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to have any financial problems. Some people follow Jesus simply because their parents followed Jesus. Okay, so we live in the deep south, right? Where everybody you talk to is a Christian, but nobody goes to church. Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. Uh, yeah, me and my parents were Christians, so I guess I just it genetically got it from them. It just kind of rubbed off, or they just passed it through their genes. Or, or my great grandfather was a preacher, so I, I, you know, I guess I, I guess I'm a Christian. Some people follow Jesus because they're addicted to this emotive feeling. They just, they just feel unworthy, and they, and they get themselves frenzied up, and they, and they're very emotional about it, and they like that, that feeling. Some people follow Jesus simply because they've tried everything under the sun. And they're like Solomon. They're like, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Like that U2 song from the Joshua Tree album, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's some people. That might be you. Nothing else works in my life. And so I guess out of desperation, I'll try Jesus because I haven't found any purpose for anything else in my life. If I could get just really personal with you for a second and ask you on, on a micro level this question. And I want you to think about this. I want this to bounce around in your head today. Why are you here? Why are you seeking Jesus? What are you hoping to get out of following Christ? I think that's a very important question to ask ourselves. The same question Jesus asked them. What are you seeking? Why do you want a relationship with Jesus? I love what Bob Deffenbaugh points out. He says this, I think Jesus is seeking people who say I do rather than I will. And I want you to think about this for a second. What a difference there is between saying I do to the one you love and saying I will to your local army recruiter. There's a huge difference, yeah? I do is the commencement of a lifelong relationship. 
One in which love and commitment will grow and intimacy will be a delight. And that life appropriately commences with a honeymoon. But I will get you another kind of relationship, doesn't it? It gets you a relationship with a drill sergeant. And it commences at boot camp. And here you've committed yourself to several years of duty, but it's not a lifelong relationship. So both I do and I will are important, but they're certainly not the same. And sadly, I fear that a number of Christians who think of being a disciple of Jesus was a I will situation rather than a I do situation. In other words, they think of the Christian life more in terms of duties rather than in terms of delight. And I don't want you to get me wrong. The Christian life does have duties and obligations, just as marriage does. But these duties should become our delight. The Christian life is not meant to be something we just merely endure. And I feel like we've been enduring. That's what we've been doing for 12 months, yeah? Just trying to get through it. I'm just trying to endure it. But the Christian life is not just something that is to merely be endured. It's meant to be something that we enjoy. It's meant to be a marriage. And that's why the Apostle Paul, when he's writing about our relationship with Christ, he, he mentions the, the marriage analogy. We are the bride of Christ. He is the groom. We are married together. And so Jesus asked that question, what do you seek? And I believe he's asking that because he wants us to say, I do, rather than I will. What I seek, Jesus, is an eternal everlasting, lifelong relationship with you because I am overwhelmed by your love. So Jesus moves from that question to an invitation. He asks them, what are you seeking? And in the text, they tell him, well, we just want to come have dinner with you. We want to see where you're staying. Uh, we want to come sit and we want to come talk to you. We've heard all these great things about you. We want to see for ourselves. So I want you to see number two, the invitation. It's in verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. There's the invitation right there. Come and you will see. I love this because what Jesus is doing is he's offering an invitation to them that, that includes self-involvement. This is not an invitation to just be a fan or a spectator. This is not an invitation to do your duty and come to church on Sunday and then live your life the way you want to live your life the rest of the week. It's an invitation to be fully involved, fully sold out, fully engaged in the mission of Jesus Christ. When you read the rest of the gospel, you understand they do follow him. They did come and see the Lord and their lives were forever changed. Because the invitation extended by Jesus was an invitation of involvement. So I belong to Generation X. We are the forgotten generation, all right, because we're wedged between the millennials uh, and the baby boomers. We've got the baby boomers over here who are older and the millennials who are younger, and these are massive, large generations. Well, wedged in there is Generation X. And uh, we've been called the forgotten generation. <laughs> we're not bitter about it. Actually, we are because we're Gen X. We're bitter about everything. But that's another story for another day. 
I digress. But for my generation, Generation X, I believe the greatest movie trilogy is, and I'm not going to say Star Wars, I believe the greatest movie trilogy of my generation is the greatest movie trilogy of all time, The Matrix. I love those movies. How many of you just have, have seen any of the Matrix movies? Okay, a lot more during the 9 o'clock service, so this may not go over well for y'all. Um, uh, the Matrix, I love that movie because there are just so many Christian undertones in, that, in this movie. Uh, there's a scene in the first movie where Morpheus is having this conversation with Neo about the Matrix. And rather than explain the scene to you, I'm going to show you a two-minute and ten-second clip. But it's the famous red pill, blue pill scene in The Matrix. So I want you to take a look at this real quick. What it is. You want to know what it is. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now, in this very room, you can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? that you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. <sighs> Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Great, great movie. It's a rainy day today. Uh, maybe you can go home and binge watch all three. I, I love those movies because just in that scene alone, there's just so many Christian undertones um, in the movie. If you don't know, let me just give you a, a little content about the movie. I'm not going to stand up here and waste a bunch of time. But you know, in the movie, The Matrix, machines have taken over the world and all human beings are kind of in this comatose state. They're asleep and the machines are using their energy. Uh, it's a science fiction movie. Uh, but uh, they're asleep, but they're, they don't know they're asleep. And so every morning in their mind, they wake up. They go to work, they go to church, but they don't go anywhere. And so in the movie itself, uh, Morpheus 
is offering Neo the truth. Uh, you take the blue pill, you'll just go back to sleep, life will, will, will be like you know it. Now think about that. The Bible tells us that we were born into slavery. We are slaves to sin. The wool has been pulled over our eyes. We are walking around like sleeping dead men. Jesus offers us the truth. But in, in, in the movie, The Matrix, Neo has no idea the effects of the invitation. Because had he taken the blue pill, there wouldn't be a, a trilogy, would there? The invitation that Jesus Christ is offering us is an invitation of involvement that opens our spiritual eyes. And the invitation of Jesus does two things for us. One, it redefines us. And number two, it sends us out. Let's talk about that for a second. First, it redefines us. Look in verse 42 of our text. This is when Andrew goes and gets Peter and brings him to Jesus. He says this, And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Okay, so his name is Simon, but Jesus is going to rename him. And he's got two names here, Cephas and Peter. Jesus spoke Aramaic. And so Cephas is the Aramaic word for the rock. But the universal language of Jesus' time was also Greek. And so Peter is the Greek form of the word the rock. And so his name's Simon, but Jesus says, listen, I'm going to rename you. I'm going to give you a nickname. We're going to call you The Rock. I love that. I wish I had a cool nickname like that, The Rock. I often wonder if Peter ever had the urge to blurt out the phrase, if you smell what The Rock is cooking. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. Anyway, Jesus is not just renaming Peter here. He's redefining him. Listen, this is who you used to be. This is who you are now. You are the rock. You are Peter. And on you, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And what I want you to understand is that a real encounter with Jesus will redefine who we are. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time here because we hit this really, really hard last week. But essentially, Jesus is offering to redefine who we are by telling us whose we are who we belong to, and when we are in covenant relationship with Jesus, we are changed. So the invitation redefines us, but his invitation also sends us out. It gives us an obligation. He gives us a, a duty to perform. His in other words, his invita invitation to us begets our invitation to others to come and see and follow Jesus. Look at verse 43 through 46. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, let's stop right there. Notice what Philip did. Same thing Andrew did. Once he found out who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah, that he was the true way to life, he said, hold on just a second, Jesus. I need to get somebody. And he went and got Simon. Well, Philip does the th same thing. You're the Messiah. Hold on. I'm going to go get Nathaniel and tell him. So Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found 
him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Verse 46, Nathanael said to him, and I can imagine this kind of a, hmm, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like Nazareth is this little village of two or three hundred people in Nowheresville. I thought the Messiah would come from the holy city of Jerusalem. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It'd be like us saying, you know, could anything good come out of Rockmart? Like, or Cedartown? Like these little tiny towns? There's nothing good coming out of there. That what people used to say about us. Remember when we were a, a country town here in Hiram? We were a little podunk Nowheresville, and everyone was like, Hiram? What's going, there ain't nothing going on in Hiram. I miss those days a little bit, especially when I try to get from here to Walmart and it takes me 35 minutes, right? <laughs> but notice what Philip says. He says the same thing that Jesus says to Andrew. Hey, come and see. I've been invited. Now, I'm going to invite you to follow Jesus, Nathaniel. And this reminds us that we are to invite others to a personal encounter with Jesus. We are to invite others to come and see who Jesus is. And to be quite frank with you, the American Evangelical Church has been, a very, has been doing a very poor job of this as of late. Elevate Christian Church, we've been doing a very poor job of this as of late. It's just kind of like we have written off a whole generation. Well, they don't go to church, so why bother? Why invite them? Uh, and, and it's the millennial generation. I don't know if you know this or not, but 68 million millennials have left the church. 68 million. And we've just kind of written them off. Well, I guess they're not interested, so I'm just not even going to bother them. Here's something in interesting. I follow a group called the Barna, Barna Group. It's a statistical analysis company, and they, they focus and church metrics, church growth, surveys with church people, and, and things of that sort. And, and they did a survey with millennials. Now remember, 68 million of them are not in church. They left the church. And the survey was very eye-opening. It said that of millennials, 61% said that they would study the Bible if somebody they knew and trusted simply asked them to. That's it. They would be willing to study the Bible. Now, the key is if somebody they knew and trusted asked them to. In other words, this is not a sick the preacher on them. Get him, Kevin. Right? This is a you know them, you love them, you trust them. That if you invited them, six out of ten would say, yeah, I would, I would be willing to sit down and engage with you and study about this Jesus of Nazareth. So I'm going to give you a challenge. I saw another church do it. It's, it's just an informal challenge uh, for you. Find a person that you know loves and trusts you, but you also know is not in covenant relationship with the Lord, and simply invite them to read one chapter of the Bible with you every week. Read it and discuss it. You can do it over Zoom and wear your mask and hand sanitizer too if you want, right? Uh, but, but have that engagement with them. I would encourage you to start not in the Gospel of John, but in the Gospel of Mark. One chapter a week. I, I say all this to say is, is that we have been invited to the party. And Jesus is instructing us to invite everyone we possibly can to the party. 
It's not a closed party. There's plenty of room at the table of God. So you see the question Jesus asked, what do you seek? You see the invitation, come and see. And next, we see in the text the real, true identity of Jesus. Remember, we're in John chapter 1. So everything's still working out. Nobody knows, you know, if Jesus is Lord, liar, or lunatic yet, right? But we know on this side who he is. But he shows us his true identity. Now, before we get to that, I want you to stop and think about something for a second that um, maybe you've never thought about. These four guys we're talking about, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, they would follow Jesus. They would become part of his inner 12, part of the 12 apostles. And man, they followed Jesus to the very ends of the earth. Think about what they gave up when they agreed to follow him. They dropped their nets and they just left them. They left their jobs. Here's the crazy thing about a job. A job provides income and you use that income to provide for yourself and for your family. Gone. They just left it. They left their families. Now, I don't know that they left them all together, but they traveled with Jesus all around the region for three years, teaching and preaching and healing and, and doing all kinds of things. So they were away from home a lot. No job, no relationship with, with family. They gave up their reputation. Remember, the Jewish leaders hated Jesus. They crucified Jesus. And so these men were considered traitors. They gave up all they had, including their very lives, for Jesus Christ. Andrew, the first guy we talked about, do you know what eventually happened to Andrew? He was on the coast of northern Greece. And he was captured and he was crucified on an X-shaped cross for his faith in Jesus Christ. He didn't want to be crucified on a regular cross because he didn't want to die like Jesus. Peter, you know what happened to Peter? History tells us that he was crucified upside down on a cross in Rome under Nero the emperor. Philip, guess what happened to him? You guessed it, crucified. Nathaniel, beaten, skin peeled off, and crucified. You know, when Jesus said things like, you must count the cost, you have to pick up your cross and follow me, these guys did it. They paid the ultimate price. And I think they did it because they knew the true identity of Jesus. Nobody's going to die for a liar. Nobody's going to give up their life for some delusional lunatic who has a Messiah complex for some madman. They died for the cause of Jesus because they knew he was the son of God and the king of Israel. And when you figure out who Jesus is, man, it will cause you to do anything for him. I want to draw your attention to the conversation that Jesus has with Nathaniel because it's very pivotal. Picking up in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and he said of him, behold an Israelite indeed and in whom there is no deceit. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong picture. Okay, because we know Jesus has no deceit because he's perfect. This isn't Nathaniel saying, behold, here comes Jesus, a man of no deceit. This is Jesus saying to Nathaniel, there's Nathaniel, a true Israelite, 
a man with no deceit. Now, I don't know how Nathaniel responded to that. That's pretty high praise. Maybe he was like, well, yeah, that's me. I'm glad you noticed. I, I, I don't know. But here's what Nathaniel says in verse 48. How do you know me? In other words, how do you know I'm a true Israelite with no deceit? What do you know about me? How, how do you know me? Like we used to say back in the day, you don't know me. This essentially is what he's saying. How do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. In other words, you thought you were all alone. There was no one around, but I saw you. Even though I wasn't there, I was standing here, I knew I saw you. Someone asked me, well, Kevin, what's the significance of the fig tree? He could have been under, under any type of tree. Why, why the fig tree? Why, why did John put that in there? No one knows. There's lots of theories. I, I'm going to give you my theory on it. I believe that, you remember when Jesus says you're a true Israelite and there's no deceit in you? That means Jesus knew he was a devout man with a pure heart. And I think this fig tree that he was under was a fig tree that he was under often. This is probably where he prayed and meditated every day. And perhaps he was praying for what a lot of Israelites were praying, the Messiah to come. And day after day, he was under that tree praying and praying. Uh, Just so you know, incidentally, the fig tree in the Bible is connected with the coming messianic era. It points to the Messiah, Micah 4, 4, Zechariah 3, 10, 1 Kings chapter 4. And so Philip had gone to Nathanael to tell him he found the Messiah. So why did he run to tell Nathanael this? I think it's because he knew Nathanael was eagerly waiting the Messiah's coming day after day after day. And when Jesus saw him under the fig tree, he was saying that he knows Nathanael has been waiting for the day that he would encounter the Messiah. And Nathanael realizes that Jesus has seen into the innermost longings and takes this as a divine sign. It gets Nathanael very excited. Look what he says next in verse 49. He just blurts out. And something that we often do is we ignore punctuation in God's word when we shouldn't. Notice the punctuation. This is not just a humdrum statement. He's excited. Rabbi. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree? You believe? You will see greater things than these. Here's what Jesus is saying. You think that's cool? That I can see everybody at all times. I know what they're doing, where they've been, who they've been with. That I I saw you under the fig tree. You ain't seen nothing yet. You're about to join my team. You're about to be one of my apostles. You're going to watch me systematically heal the sick, restore sight to the blind. The deaf will hear. I will raise the dead. I will multiply food out of thin air. You'll see me walk on water. I will tell The raging storm, hey, pipe down over there, and the raging storm will oblige, and it will become calm. You you will see myself defeat death and raise from the grave in three days. You'll see me ascend to heaven. You'll see me coming in the clouds, riding a white horse to come back, and then you have no idea the majesty and the glory that you'll see when you're in my Father's house. 
And you're impressed that I saw you under a fig tree. You ain't seen nothing yet, baby. It's exactly what Jesus is saying. And then verse 51 seems very cryptic, but it's not. Jesus reveals something so profound right here in verse 51 to Nathaniel about his identity, and he reveals it to us as well. Look at verse 51. Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on me, the Son of Man. Now, John writes in the Greek here, and in the Greek language, there's a word picture being painted here. Do you know the word picture Jesus is painting when he says, listen, you're going to see heaven open and you're going to see angels going up and angels going down? He's painting a picture of a ladder in the Greek, stretching from earth to heaven, angels coming down to minister, angels going back up. This is profound. It was extremely profound to Nathaniel, who was a Jewish man. I imagine he knew right away what Jesus was saying here. You and I aren't Jewish, so we might need a little help here. In the Old Testament, when you talk about God's people, uh, they had three very important patriarchs in the Old Testament. Does anyone know who they are? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Nobody wants to say, I want to get it wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's Abraham. Just say Jesus, you'll be right. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are three very important men in the Old Testament. When Jesus is talking about this ladder, that's going from earth to heaven with angels descending up and down on the ladder. He, when he's talking to, the, to this ladder, uh, to, to Nathaniel, he's actually referring to something that happened to Jacob, one of the great patriarchs in the Old Testament. Now, I don't know if you've ever done a study on Jacob. Jacob is Abraham's grandson. Jacob was quite a character, man. He was a deceiver. Okay, unlike Nathaniel, where Jesus said, here comes a man, there's no deceit in him. Jacob was the ultimate deceiver. In fact, do you know what Jacob means in the Hebrew? Trickster, schemer, <laughs> deceiver. So if you've got a kid named Jacob, he's a deceiver. Now, we've got a kid in Jake, named Jacob in here, and he's the farthest thing from a deceiver. He, I, I love that boy, Jacob Jinx. He's nothing like Jacob in the Old Testament. But Jacob was a deceiver. And he would remain a deceiver until God renamed him. Just like Simon Peter, he redefined him. He named him Israel. But before that, Jacob was scheming and stealing and tricking people. And one of the people, one of the persons that he tricked was his older brother Esau. It was his twin brother. He was a couple minutes older than Jacob. And he tricked Esau out of his inheritance, out of a lot of money, out of his birthright. And he got Esau to sell him his birthright for a bowl of split pea soup. That's basically what it accounted to. I'm hungry. Well, if you sell me your birthright, I'll give you something to eat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. And then he eats it and he's like, no, I wasn't kidding. You just gave me your birthright. Well, you can imagine Esau was angry and he set out to kill Jacob. 
I'm going to kill you for what you did. And so he was after him. Jacob was on the run. Everyone had abandoned him. He was alone. He was in the wilderness. He was worn out. He laid down in the dirt to go to sleep. He didn't even have a blanket. The only thing he could find was a rock, and he used it for a pillow. And in Genesis chapter 8, he's exhausted. His world is just caved in on him. Everyone wants to kill him. He falls asleep, and he has a dream. Genesis 28, 12, and 13. And he, Jacob, dreamed. Now don't miss this. And behold, there was a what? A ladder set up on earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. So he sees this ladder. He's laying on earth and he looks up and he sees a ladder stretched to heaven. And there's God standing at the top of the ladder. And angels are coming down the ladder. And angels are going up the ladder. And I want you to notice in the text something that we miss. Jacob wasn't seeking God. God sought out Jacob here. Romans chapter 3 says no one seeks God unless he comes to them. And so God, in his mercy, descends down on Jacob and he's saying, Jacob, listen, everything's going to be okay. I know the world's against you. I know you're on the run. I know you're sleeping in the wilderness. I know you only have a pillow for a rock. I know your brother wants to kill you. And, and this is a long line of people who want, to, who want to hurt you. And I know your world's crashing down. There are trials and tribulations everywhere. But I'm telling you, Jacob, everything's going to be okay. Because I have descended down to you. Now think back to our text when Jesus is talking with Nathaniel. All right, and he says, hey, I'm the ladder. Nathaniel, I'm the ladder. Angels will ascend and descend on me. Nathaniel, I'm Jacob's ladder. I'm the link between heaven and earth, between God and humanity. Nathaniel, you think it's cool that you saw me under a fig tree and you were praying for me to come? Well, I am here now, and, 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 and you are about to be a witness to my true identity. I'm the all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful Son of God. I'm the ladder that Jacob dreamed about. I'm the true way to life. Nathaniel, I am the ladder, and he is the same ladder for us because no man comes to the Father but by the Son. And you see, it's not a ladder in which we ascend to get to God, but it's a ladder in which God descended to get to us. He descended to come to earth for everybody in here. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, saying, hey, I'm coming to meet you where you are. You see, that's the true identity of Jesus Christ. Let me close out with verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King. 
of Israel. I you to focus on that phrase just for a second, the king of Israel. We're American, so uh, that's a hard phrase for us to wrap our mind around, right? Because generally speaking, Americans don't like kings. We had a king once in the 1700s, and it didn't really work out too well for him, did it? And so when, when we hear the word king as, as Americans, we usually have one or two images that pop into our mind. The first is, is that of a distant tyrant across the ocean who mistreats the people and taxes the mess out of their tea. Or the second image we have when we think of a king is the now meaningless figurehead. A historical office held over from the past, but no longer really yields any power. And I want you to hear me this morning. When we speak of Jesus Christ as our king, we're not alluding to either a tyrant or a figurehead or even a benevolent king who rules for a season. We are instead speaking of a perfect, righteous, all-loving king who is absolutely sovereign in his authority and eternal in his reign. That's what Nathaniel means when he says, you are the king of Israel. And Jesus is the king of us too. He's the king of our heart. And he's what the Bible says, the king of kings. The creme de la creme. There are no other kings like him. He's a king that you've never ever thought about before. He's a king unlike anybody else. He's the king of Israel, the son of God, the king of kings, the king of Israel. He is king and he is good. Amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate or partner with us in what God is doing here, check out our website at elevatecc.com. Until next time, God bless you and thanks again.